This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. The Cold War ended because American capitalism, in a triumphant victory, defeated Soviet communism. Presidents Reagan and Bush stood up to totalitarianism, and it was defeated. In June 1987, President Reagan gave a speech at the Berlin Wall where he famously said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. By November 1989, what, that's like 16 or two years later, the Berlin Wall that separated East Germans from West, communism from capitalism, was gone, and the former communists could not wait to finally breathe the fresh air of free markets. Reagan and Bush succeeded because, we are told by the media and political leaders, the U.S. increased military spending to such a degree that the Soviets could simply not keep up and their economy was destroyed in their attempt in doing so. But the reality is far different from what then-presidential nominee George H.W. Bush told attendees at the 1988 Republican National Convention. There, as our guest today reminds us, then-Vice President Bush told the crowd that U.S. perseverance and military might, not Soviet reforms, diplomacy, and negotiation, made all the difference. Years of talks were negated. The progress Mikhail Gorbachev had made was erased. And in doing so, again citing our guest, quote, unlike Germany, the Soviet Union, and South Africa, the United States refused a moment of glasnost, a political opening that might have allowed a reckoning with our Cold War past. That reckoning never happened, and without it, as Czech leader Vaclav Havel had warned, there would be a rise of European far-right ethno-nationalism, which is exactly what happened. We'll do our best to try and figure out exactly how the Cold War really ended and what that end means for U Europe, the United States, and the entire world today when we have the great honor of speaking with historian Penny M. Von Eschen, author of the new book, Paradoxes of Nostalgia. Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorder Since 1989. Penny is the William R. Kennan, Jr., Professor of American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Virginia. She is also author of Satchmo Blows Up the World, Jazz Ambassadors Play the Cold War, as well as Race Against Empire, Black Americans, and Anti-Colonialism, 1937-1957, which sounds like a fascinating book, especially for those of you who are African-American historians out there, people who are interested in African-American history, check out Race Against Empire, Black Americans and Anti-Colonialism, 1937-1957. Also by today's guest, Penny M. Von Eschen. That's E-S-C-H-E-N. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, anything new by you? Haven't seen you for a few weeks. Oh, that's not true. You Just saw a week. Last I week. just saw you last week. See, I'm still delirious <laughs> from the from the being on vacation. That's cool. I'm doing good. I just mail dropped the 29th issue of my comic book zine. Oh, really? You have a comic book zine? I got a comic book zine. Why do I not know these things? You know, someday we're just going to have to have shows where I just interview <laughs> the producers so I can find out what the hell they're up to. Tell us about your comic book zine. It's called the Fifty Flip Experiment. It's a weird science fiction fantasy thing. It's really cartoony with jokes, and I got it into that uh, little blue box by my house. That always feels good. Oh, really? You put it in a little library? 
No, no, no. Like the mail mailbox. I was hoping you were putting it in little libraries too. That's that would be kind of cool. Idea. I was gonna just say that's the kind of exposure that makes people. Yes, yeah. and it's also kind of a culture jam. So, what is the book about? Well, each issue is uh, different. This last one was about a woodland creatures jamboree. But yeah. That goes different from issue to issue. I just try to make it as funny and strange as possible every issue. How can people find it? 50flipexperiment.com. 50flipexperiment.com. Check out Dan Hill's work there. Why do I not know these things? I'll give you some issues. They're good for you. Good, good. I'd love to have some. And In fact, it would be great. a great uh, addition to the uh, art show up here. Oh, yeah. Good idea. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, like I was saying, and uh, that's our producer, Dan Hill. What's new by me is what's old by me. That is, I am very excited about the return of This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet that is more of a drink and think, which is back beginning this Wednesday, August 24th, at its regular location, the bar downstairs from this here studio, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. The last time we convened a session of This Is Hell Office Hours was way back on February 26th, 2020, just as Chicago's first cases of COVID-19 were being detected and diagnosed. Back then, we held office hours every Wednesday beginning around 6 p.m., and we generally hung out until at least 10 p.m. Drop by, have a drink. There's usually something to eat, but if not, there's a dozen different places to get something to eat within a one-block walk. Hang out, meet some of the crew of This Is Hell, as well as other listeners. If you join us, I'll give you a free book. That's the return of This Is Hell office hours happening tomorrow, Wednesday evening. August 24th at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Look for me out back in the beer garden enjoying summer weather while we still can. That's This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet. That's really a drink and think returning to our regular Wednesday time at 6 p.m. starting this Wednesday, August 24th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Come by, enjoy a drink, get a book. It'll be great. But more importantly than any of that, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term? (laughs) You want to repeat that one more time because it's so complicated. Yeah, sure. Get your uh, pens out. (laughs) What everyday food item do you down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term. There's a great response on Twitter to us. You can follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio that we'll be sharing with you either later today or during tomorrow's show. But yeah, we've got some great responses on this very bizarre question from hell that Sebastian wrote in reference to the campaign of Mehmet Oz for Senate in uh, Pennsylvania. Whatever. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever. This is hell swag you want. This is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not have any commercial sponsors. We do not take any grant money. We do everything we can to make certain that you do not think that we have any sort of conflict of interest. But that leaves us with 
hoping that you will show your support for This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct a message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. And now a word from our sponsors. But wait, you just said This Is Hell does not have any sponsors as it is completely listener-supported, which means... Our sponsors are you. You can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or even destructive criticism, if you'd like, at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. If we have your suggested guest on the show, we'll thank you personally during the interview with your suggested guest. We got an email from past This Is Hell producer Daphne Agassin, who I recently saw at the opening of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art show during the 50th anniversary party of Carrie's Lounge. And there will be the closing of This Is Art during our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary party on summer's last weekend, Saturday, September 17th, also at Carrie's Lounge. Daphne writes, Hello! There are many O's in there. How are you? It was nice to see you at the opening and the Carrie's anniversary party. I wanted to tell you I wrote to past guest Ariella Azule about a new movie that she made, and I talked to Pete, the person who owns Carrie's Lounge, about doing a screening somewhere at Carrie's Lounge, maybe downstairs, maybe upstairs. So some of you who are our regular listeners may remember Ariella Azule. As a guest on her show back in June of 2020, when we talked with her about her book, Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism, which is an absolutely fascinating book. Ariella, uh, her book was selected by listeners that year as one of their favorites featured on the show in 2020, and so we replayed the interview during the holidays. You can find the interview interview with Ariella at thisishell.com when you search on her last name, Azule. That's A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y. And I strongly suggest you do, as she was an outstanding guest on the show. I promise you, once you listen to that conversation, you will never think about photography in the same way again. Spoiler alert, photography is an expression of colonialism. See? I told you that interview will blow your mind. So Daphne wrote to Ariella uh, saying she wanted to show her new movie, show Ariella's new movie, and that movie is called The World Like a Jewel in the Hand, Unlearning Imperial Plunder 2. I guess there's an original of of this movie, and this is a sequel. Anyway, so Daphne wants to show that movie at Carrie's, and she contacted Ariella to tell her that she wanted to do so. Here's Ariella's reply. I enjoyed being in conversation with This Is Hell, and it will be wonderful to think that the film will be screened in a venue that is connected. Daphne adds, I thought the art gallery would be great, but it would only hold like 20 people. Now I'm thinking of projecting to the balcony and sitting on the back patio. But either way, I wanted to tell you about the idea and see if you have thoughts. For dates, I have to write back to uh, Ariella and Pete. But in August on some weekday in the evening would be ideal. I'll also try to do a screening outside somewhere, but she was, you know, Ariella was excited about holding it in the space that was associated with This Is Hell. Great to meet Sebastian as well, Daphne. So here's the description of Ariella's movie real quick. Objects held captive in museums and archives from outside of the place where they were looted 
is only the visible tip of the iceberg of the mass colonial plunder of Africa. Substantial wealth was accumulated through the extraction of raw materials, labor, knowledge, and skills, including visual wealth, putting people in front of the colonizers' cameras. This long-running ransack that never stopped cannot be addressed within the discourse of restitution of individual objects. It requires the questioning of the imperial foundations of the world in which we live. Within the wide landscapes opened by this questioning, the film focuses on the destruction of the Jewish-Muslim world that existed in North Africa and insists on making it imaginable again. So thanks for writing, Daphne, and that movie sounds absolutely fantastic. However, I could not find any information about it online, the running time or anything like that. So I emailed Daphne, and I hope to have more details for you soon. Who knows, maybe we could have a screening in the gallery uh, space uh, during an upcoming office hours that we are now holding regularly on uh, Wednesday evenings again. Again, if you want to contact us, email chuck at thisishell.com, and if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. Coming up, a re-examination of the end of the Cold War. Dan will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what everyday food item do you down-to-earth person that you are refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term. What everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign term? And if you want to see how other people are answering so far, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or check out our Twitter feed, at thisishellradio. We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, This is hell. The story we are repeatedly told here in the United States is that the end of the Cold War proved capitalism triumphant over communism. And from that matter, any kind of socialism you can dare imagine. But what if the people of Eastern Europe, who were finally out from under the thumb of the Soviets, didn't want to become U.S.-style free market capitalists once the wall fell? What if what they wanted was a more humanized socialism? And what if the world saw the end of the Cold War as an opportunity for a nuclear-free, peaceful future of global cooperation and not a moment for the U.S. to become a superpower, single hegemon, to rule the world? Here to help us have a better understanding of the end of the Cold War and a missed opportunity, historian Penny M. Von Eschen is author of the new book, Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism, and Global Disorder Since 1989. Welcome to This Is Hell, Penny. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having uh, for being on our show. I was just mentioning that film by Ariella Azale and how she uh, wants the world to re-examine uh, imperialism, past colonialism and imperialism. Do you think that there was this opportunity at the end of the Cold War for the world to re-examine that imperialism and that colonialism, not just what had happened during the Cold War, but what had happened for the previous four or even five centuries? Well, absolutely. Um, I I would start with what was happening at the end of the Cold War, but I think a lot of those critiques invited a a much deeper call to examine history. Um, And you see that coming out of South Africa, Germany, the Eastern Bloc. So, in the 80s, as there as Reagan rapidly accelerated 
US Cold War projects and wars in Latin America, in Southern Africa, in Afghanistan. Um, you've got what you've got a real um, except a, a real deepening of this very violent intersection of colonialism and Cold War policies. So yes, that was absolutely it was absolutely on the table to re-examine those. And when you get to the 80s, as you suggested, you know, we've got we've got people in the Eastern Bloc calling for socialism with a human face, return to the values of socialism. But there was enormous amount of synergy with that movement and movements of the global South, certainly the anti-imperialism of Central America, but also the anti-apartheid movement. So these people are having concerts for each other, appearing on stages together, making these links between a deep history of colonialism and the way that had intersected with the Cold War and Cold War violence. And just one, you know, one example and one thing I would add to that is this also was wrapped up with calls for environmental social justice and a demand to look at the, the way Cold War militarism had wreaked havoc on the environment. And in 1986, Mikhail Gorbachev and Rajiv Gandhi appeared together and issued what was then called the Delhi Declaration, arguing for, um, again, this deep examination of the way the Cold War had exacerba exacerbated um, co colonial violence and demanding a redress for, you know, emergency measures to address environmental damage. And here, of course, Gorbachev, who is calling for a deep glasnost, political openness, um, economic reform, but not, not in the form of shock therapy or neoliberal capitalism, which is what they got. But he's he's calling for that in an examination um, in an examination of the past. Penny, I just want to say that you know I have like sixty questions that I've pre-written for you, and this is the conversation. This already started off as one of the con kinds of conversations I really enjoy because just from your response <laughs> right now, I wrote two new follow-up questions, and these are the conversations I really enjoy the most. So, how would you compare or contrast? the missed opportunity of the end of the Cold War to re-examine what had happened during the Cold War, to re-examine, as you were saying, uh, colonialism. Uh, how would you compare and contrast that missed opportunity to the missed opportunity that many point to of 9-11, of this opportunity where the world seemed to be coming together to support the United States in, uh, not in a war against uh, terrorism, but to support the uh, United States in a campaign against terrorism? Is there, is there something similar uh, between the two missed opportunities of the end of the Cold War and 9-11? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think the missed opportunity is that in both cases, the US sort of doubled down on a we are right Cold War triumphalism and sort of doubled down on both militarism and the kind of extractive oil economies. So, um, and I'm gonna use a really concrete example. Um, well, both, you really see this congealing in you know the early 90s and late 89 but really congealing as the US went to war in Iraq and so so and this is a moment when i think you know people forget today there was enormous opposition to that war people globally people wanted a negotiated settlement in the middle east after saddam hussein had 
invaded a sovereign country of Kuwait, but people wanted to negotiate a settlement with that addressed um, a restoration of Palestinian rights. So this immediately ties us to colonialism. And instead, um, through several, through both um, his skills as a diplomat, Bush kind of mobilized and got enough people to reject that and, and follow the United States. And I think this, this involved a deep, deep disavowal of, of, of US colonialism and the way it intersected with early colonial forms. So um, in, in this case, um, it, it, it involved a complete, um, just sort of a, a, a shocking denial that of the US alliances with Iraq and Saddam Hussein during the, the Iraq-Iran war that, had, uh, that was so destructive in the 1980s. So Saddam Hussein had been a very strong ally, but instead of admitting that or analyzing that, um, the US went off into kind of a straight denialism of this. And one of the things that I do in the book is both around that war, but looking at the, um, the last years of apartheid and how profoundly violent that was, um, George H.W. Bush in the U.S. just carried out incredible, like, you know, just, um, I, I just, I sort of think of him as just having a lot of chutzpah. He's a, straight denials of a colonial past. So Bush is literally telling people in um, Namibia and Mozambique who had been allies of the anti-apartheid movement and, and, and victims of the way the United States had shored up earlier colonial forms in the name of anti-communism. And he's literally saying, you know, I, I, could, I could be a help in South Africa if de Klerk and Mandela think that's a good idea because Bush says literally, quote, we have a clean slate of colonialism. We do not have a colonial past. So this moment goes into like an extremely active rewriting, right, of history and a in a, uh, I think a really self-knowing denial of knowing um, denial of history. Now, you know, jumping jumping to 9/11 um, and post 9/11, um, that uh, in a moment of historical examination, that could have been a moment when I don't see any reason a U.S. policymaker could not have said, and this is what Chalmers Johnson has called blowback, that mistakes were made in the Cold War. Um, the United States um, made a mistake in 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 funding um, very in, you know so in putting a lot of money into um, the most anti-American groups that we could find and fomenting and really creating a, a form of um, fundamentalist um, you know a sort of a form of fundamentalist Islam that is that is now challenging the United States. So let's work together as a world to see the way these mistakes of the Cold War have caused a kind of blowback and created new problems, but let's solve them through multilateral cooperation and honesty. But instead, um, of course, as we know, um, there was an utter denial of any of that history, any of the U.S. early involvement in Afghanistan um, and Iraq, and, and a, pro a proclamation of you know, sort of American innocence and righteousness and an insistence on you know, leading, once again, leading the free world and asking everybody else to fall in step.
What explains this seemingly consistent process of the U.S. denying its history? What does that reveal to you about the United States and about its history when whether it's denying the past of the Cold War in 1989, whether it's a, a, a unwillingness to deny the past of the uh, blowback situations like Chalmers Johnson has ex- had explained on our show, the late, great uh, Chalmers Johnson. So, so what, what does that reveal to you about the United States when it's in such consistent denial, and we see it with this fake critical race theory uh, controversy today. What explains to you why the United States is so consistently in denial about its history and what does it reveal about the U.S.? That is, that is a great and huge question. So um, I think we'd have to think about this in terms of both the um, immediate political expediency of, of, of denying its past and and in, in the, yeah, I think the short you know, the short, too simple, but very correct explanation of the post-Cold War world is that um, the United States chose to, um, by by doubling down on extreme economic um, deregulation and neoliberal capitalism and and the oil industry and simply trying to make money and sort of protect the profits of its richest corporations at the you know it, you know at never mind the cost to everybody else so there is um so i think there's 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 that political expediency in the moment um that is you know that's profoundly cynical and I, we can see how destructive that is in the years after 1989 um and I, I do think that there's also, um, um, and this is, and maybe this is, you know, the right, the, the right questions and inquiries are always complicated. Um, there's, I think there's also, there, there's a much, much deeper, um, there's much deeper tropes and narratives that are a denial of colonial and imperial past, like the refusal to look at the destruction of indigenous peoples, the refusal, even when one cannot ignore slavery, to acknowledge how fundamental the enslavement of Africans was to, you know, the wealth and, you know, very making of, of the United States. And you see a deeper history of, of just of colonial denial. So just a notion that, um, that Whereas, you know, we can look and see patterns of U.S. imperialism and colonialism, that there was a consistent um, argument made on the part of policymakers that, you know, quote, we, quote, you know, the United States was fundamentally different than European colonial powers. And this is how you can see somebody like Bush saying, you know, we, you know, we don't have a colonial past or how policymakers came up with this form of, um, you know, just all these elaborations that claimed we are, you know, not like the the European colonizers. Um, so yes, much much deeper histories of denial, and I think we have to kind of address all of those registers. And the other thing that might seem a little contradictory, I think we also, and this goes along with the political con- expediency, because I think we have these, you know, maybe deep tropes that are maybe unexamined at times by the people who invoke them, but you also have that mixed with people like George H.W. and other policymakers in that period who 
knew very well that they were suppressing what they had done, you know, yesterday or three years ago. And, um, and were so very, very self-conscious crafters of a new narrative that would um, insist on their innocence of this past, even though they completely knew better. You mentioned how in the post-Cold War, immediate post-Cold War world, there was this hope not only for uh, peaceful collaboration, but a, a hope for a, a global fight against climate change. Is the missed opportunity at the end of the Cold War a missed opportunity to address climate change? And why would U.S. triumphalism, why would that undermine any fight against climate change in the post-Cold War era? Well, the I think the the triumphalism came in a couple of ways, and um, and one of the things, and uh, people have written about this extensively, and it's received journalism, you know, um, a lot of attention in journalism recently. There was a 1989 conference um, in in the Netherlands, and it was I think it's you know it's it's interesting that it was in the very same week as um, the Berlin Wall was dismantled, and this was a conference where. Um, it was it was global. It was a conference of scientists, but also policymakers. And it had seemed like what was going to come out of that was a firm declaration of, um, of of some dramatic steps to address the climate. And ironically, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons behind this. But George H. W. Bush had had he'd run as, for president as a um, you know not quite as a climate activist, but by somebody who was saying that this is a very serious problem and he was going to you know really address global warming and climate change but in this moment the us then backs out and then quickly some other other major countries back out and people were shocked because it really looked like it was going to go through so the immediate um the immediate um one of the immediate causes was um Bush's advisor, John Sununu, challenged the very idea of scientific expertise, you know, like some paraphrasing. This is kind of technical poppycock. We the scientists don't know what they're doing. So this is a really critical moment because it really it starts this attack on science. So it's it's it, it, and it brings people really then more deeply into um, epistemological crises on many, many levels. What can you believe? What can you not believe? But the very the fact that they're turning on the scientists in this moment. So some of the obvious explanations are Sununu Bush, they're profoundly tied to the oil industry. Their wealth is tied is is their wealth is tied to the oil industry. And but it, it but as you well know, I mean this is this is so deeply tied up with an entire military industrial complex and the attitude of like Bush is determined and he proudly declares after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we are the, you know, we're the only superpower. We are, we, this is, they completely embrace unipolar power. And um, during the time this was really laid bare when what became known as a Wolfowitz doctrine was leaked, the U.S., really laying out in Department of Defense policy that we will not allow any, any counter-hegemonic challenge to the United States, either economic, either political. We will not allow that to emerge in the Soviet Union or in the former, or, or in Europe, or the former Soviet bloc or, or Europe. And um, 
And I think that, so I think this broader idea that the US has the right to be the unilateral power and it will be backed up by militarism and all the implications then to, you know, to continue um, an investment in the kinds of fossil fuels and economies that the military has been based on and that, and the idea that that should be extended when clearly the former Soviet Block in Europe, and I'm so glad you brought up Baklahavl. The, the the idea that this level of militarization was a Cold War product and a horrible mistake, and we need to back up and we need to address all this stuff. And it fundamentally is going to require deep multi deep multinational multilateral cooperation. Um, and and I think the the U.S. Um, over what you get over the 90s is not just this immediate um, insistence on unipolar power, but um, from the time of Newt Gingrich and I always call it contract on America, contract with America, the, the central foreign policy um, element of that was both expanding NATO and sort of against any kind of multilateral cooperation, like against the United Nations. So when we see recently, um, it, I mean, it was, I mean, on the one hand, it's absolutely incredible to have Trump pull out of the World Health Organization in the midst of a pandemic, pull out of global climate agreements, but that deep suspicion of global institutions has a much longer history. And of course it didn't start um, in the post-Cold War period. We remember during Reagan administration, they were refusing to pay the United Nations or pay their dues, but it really does deepen as a fundamental part of that Republican agenda from the nineties onward. So, you know, you know, we are triumphalist, we won the Cold War and we're running the world and we're not, you know, cooperation is, is we're, we'll always be suspect because, you know, if people, if they're strong or if they're strong multinational organizations or even a, a much stronger Europe, that that would be a challenge to the U.S. sort of hegemony in being able to really set the terms of the economy of that period. We are speaking with historian Penny M. Von Eschen, author of the new book, Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorder Since 1989. She is also author of Satchmo, Blows Up the World, Jazz Ambassadors Play the Cold War, and Race Against Empire, Black Americans, and Anti-Colonialism, 1937 to 1957. You write that as 1989 ended, popular demands for peace, transparency, and accountability had bypassed the political status quo favored by American and Soviet elites, resulting in the unraveling of the Cold War. But politicians and the media in the United States are always demanding more freedom or campaigning on promises of protecting or advancing freedom. So in the States, how did demands for freedom go too far for the U.S. status quo? So that's um, that's very interesting. I think that... Um, I think, um, in a sense, they went too far, um, both because people were demanding um, economic change, uh, you know, economic change, a peace dividend. People looked around at the United States and the over 
investment in the military sector for the last decades, but then accelerated under Reagan at the expense of schools, sewers, roads, bridges, public schools was, was all too apparent. So there, there certainly were demands in this sense. And I think we have to say, I mean, like the twist in here is that I think we can say that was strong enough that as we know, Bush, you know, George H.W. did not win the 1992 election. So I think that's, you know, that's that's one um, that's one look at the, you know, the great dissatisfaction with the economy and um, and moving in another direction. But then on a sort of an economic sense, of course, um, Clinton sort of fully picked up that kind of neoliberal agenda. And then um, the um, and the way I would turn, because there's so many other factors here, but, you know, so the, um, and I really see, you know, sort of, of course, um, Clinton's not exactly like Bush, but he eventually, you know, he acquiesces to the, um, once the Republicans sweep Congress, he really acquiesces to their um, policies in many level and especially their domestic policies. So the the idea that there's going to be um, greater um, the, the idea that more money is going to go into the dream that more money would go into education and to sort of fixing a social infrastructure and go into healthcare is completely thrown out by um, by the new by the new legislation of the 1990s. You also write that in 1983, the Irish band U2's hit single New Year's Day honored the Solidarity Movement, condemning the Polish government's hostility to the trade union-based struggle led by Lech Walesa. U2's anthem of solidarity with striking Polish workers resonated with labor and left constituencies in Margaret Thatcher's Britain and among Americans opposed to Ronald Reagan's aggressive anti-labor policies. But workers in the United States and Britain they didn't attain freedom from Thatcher and Reagan's anti-labor policies. So why do they lead to changes in the former Soviet bloc, but not in the United States or the United Kingdom? And does that reveal to you anything about uh, the U.S. and the U.K. during the time of the end of the Cold War? Yes, I mean, you know, absolutely. I think um, labor in the United States is embattled in the 1980s and um, and we can think of, you know, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher famously saying that there's, you know, there's no such thing as society, only individuals. So you kind of have this Reagan-Thatcher war on society. And, and on the one hand, yes, I mean, the, the, those calls that, that global solidarity that connected um, anti-imperialism, anti-colonial movements, anti-apartheid and labor struggles, I think it, it's powerful. So in some sense, it becomes a target of neoliberal and right projects who deliberately go after it as Reagan deliberately goes after, right, you know, breaking labor unions. So in some sense, in it, that becomes a target. And, and I think the way, you know, and on the one hand, these movements are successes because they transform, um, you know, they transform the movements in the global South and the Eastern Bloc are successes because they transform their societies. On the other hand, they are also deeply, deeply crippled by 
um, IMF, World Bank policies, imposition of those policies by shock therapy. So in those places also, um, whether it's anti-apartheid movement in South Africa or certainly um, Gorbachev, Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc, people do not get what they were asking for. And I, I, I don't wanna diminish how important those profound transformations were, but there's also um, rapid disappointment and disorientation because of the, you know, um, in South Africa, the um, deep economic redistribution and nationalization was absolutely on the table when Mandela got out of prison. Um, Mandela and others said, there's no way you can address the, um, the you know, just profound damage of, you know, apartheid in, in, and transform a country run by a few oligarchs without this big economic redress. But by a whole series of mechanisms, um, they ended up putting together a constitution that really protected banking and limited the ability of the new um, ANC government to carry out those kind of economic reforms. Um, likewise, in um, you know, if we just take Baklahavo for one as, as one example. Um, as he you know left the presidency, he um, he lamented. I mean, he felt he felt that he had um, given um, too much to the um, strong capitalist economic reformers, and and but clearly in the moment, he like others felt you know incredible pressure to. Um, accept what he then saw as too extreme of market reforms rather than then being able to protect areas and say, oh, you know, sure we want, um, sure we want a market in this area or that area, but we can't, um, but we don't want to, um, we don't want to give up sort of the social goods of whether it's education or healthcare or, or other, you know, or, or kind of other mechanisms. So, and I think, you know, as, as you know, these changes happen so fast. So just like, just like reform completely got out of, you know, kind of got away from Gorbachev. So, you know, neither Gorbachev or the U.S. is in control as all of this is unfolding. And, um, and that in the last thing in the world that he and these early reformers wanted was was the kind of shock therapy which which which, which did not come with social safety networks, including in in healthcare, um, leading to incredible suffering. And then again, this obviously sets up later um, problem, you know, later vulnerability to um, to um, to very problematic forms of nostalgia. Um, but. Um, so yeah, so not being in control and really no, none of the reformers really um, got what they want if you're looking at this sort of set of actors. You also, uh, well, people at the time of the end of the Cold War, they were hoping for what, as you were mentioning earlier, what uh, people were calling the peace dividend. You write that the buoyant hopes for democracy and disarmament that accompanied the revolutions of 1989 soon yielded to grave concerns about new conflicts in a rapidly remilitarizing world marked by spiking inequality. So there's the talk of the post-Cold War peace dividend, which George H.W. Bush and Margaret Thatcher described as an economic benefit that would occur due to a decrease in defense funding that would happen after the end of the Cold War. 
What role did spiking inequality play in rapid world remilitarization following the Cold War, as well as the lack of any peace dividend domestic and global economies? What role did inequality uh, play in ending the chance for a peace dividend? Um, so that's a that's a great question. Um, so in a sense, I think, I think that um, I think the inequality in militarism are certainly linked, but they also I think they also take slightly different trajectories. So the inequality is greatly exacerbated because of and I think I have I have one chart and again, people have written about this extensively. But we know about this, this dizzying rise of inequality over the last many decades. And it did not start um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union or 89. So this is happening in the 70s and 80s and it's accelerated since. But if you, if you look at the charts, the biggest leap in inequality came during the 90s. So, you know, the, and this, so this is when you really have the, the very rich completely separating from and pulling off anything that you might have been able to consider um, a middle class. So in one sense, that is, um, that's very tied to both um, to US economic policy, to neoliberalism, to the way, um, and I should say to the way in the Cold War that Reagan was really able to weaponize global financial institutions like the IMF and World Bank to really target Yugoslavia as one example. And, um, and I think scholars of that area have uh, uh, that area have convincingly argued that this is um, this is kind of at the heart of the breakup of Yugoslavia and the um, the wars that followed and the war in the, um, Bosnia. Um, so you've, you've, you've got that kind of weaponization and then you got this with this idea of, um, you know, the end of history or the great triumph of capitalism and on a, you've got, you've got the United States, especially, but, and, and, and again, the global financial community community in this giddy conflation of capitalism and democracy and saying, you know, democracy has defeated communism and what they're what they mean by democracy is unregulated capitalism. So now the kinds of programs that get imposed in, you know, the shock therapy that is that gets imposed in both the global south and the Soviet Union is just um, is just, you know, is is just very, very devastating. And then I mean, then arguably, um, well, not even arguably, the kinds of um, that kind of instability is then I think the the economic suffering and instability is then in in some senses I think well um, well very linked to later militarization, um, but we'd have to really look at sort of the first. Um, how quickly the U.S. goes into first, you know, Panama and Iraq, and then um, what happens in, and I think what happens in both the U.S. intervention in Somalia, which I kind of see as a as a exception that proves the rule for their non-intervention in um, in Bosnia and Rwanda, because the U. both 
Bush and Clinton are seeing this through a frame of a clash of civilizations. So I would say I don't, I think that's not, you know, so there's a lot of different things going on. I up into a neat package, but the, um, but the, but I think when historians have looked at the, the wars in all of the wars of this era are, are certainly tied to um, the sort of economic destabilization that's um, that's brought about by inequality and in and I think if you look at any single instance you can really see how um, how tightly that's tied to the IMF World Bank and sort of global financial and U.S. neoliberal policies that have really created that destabilization. And I think, and again, in these cases, um, as wonder, as the amazing Mahmoud Mondani has shown, looking at Rwanda and other people have looked at this, you can only, you understand these conflicts, you can only understand them by really looking at the intersections of colonial and Cold War violence. Mahmoud is also a past guest on our show, and people should check out our interviews with him also oh, at, at thisishell.com. Again, we're speaking with Penny M. Von Eschen, author of Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorder Since 1989. And you write that repurposing the past was critical to George H.W. Bush's conception of American leadership in a new world order, a phrase he borrowed from Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, enacting their vision of a unipolar world undergirded by U.S.-led militarism, American policymakers consistently favored nationalist over multinational formations, relying on clash of civilization arguments, as you were just mentioning, for military spending and intervention. U.S. officials and their policies fueled at times unwittingly the short and long-term development of xenophobic right-wing ethnic nationalisms in the United States and abroad. At times unwittingly. What, is, what does that say about the thinking behind Clash of Civilizations arguments when those making them did not realize they were contributing to xenophobic right-wing ethnic nationalisms in the United States and abroad? How does belief in and promotion of Clash of Civilizations arguments lead to xenophobic right-wing nationalism? And why did those who were making those arguments not recognize that? Um, that that is a great question, um, and so here um, I'll, I'll I'll start with um, George George H W, and then um, because in and in a sense I thought I thought about this a lot because I think in a sense that he did not overtly traffic in um, sort of xenophobia or anti um, anti Islamic modes of thought, but again, as a, as a very, um, as, as somebody who was adept at, um, very adept at consciously crafting a new narrative about U.S. power that involved denying history and denying the past. I think, um, so I think he did, un and I'll, I'll say unwitting because I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think he's not as invested in forms of um, Islamophobia as some of the other people in this period. And I think we have to understand this across different registers. But what I mean by this, when in when Bush, um, after um, Hussein, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and as I mentioned before, 
um, at the United Nations in the United States, there's um, there's a lot of sentiment that this you know this isn't really not a good thing, but we don't need to go to war over this. We need a negotiated settlement that addresses restoration of Palestinian rights. We really have to you know look to a new peaceful world and um, and look at these. Um, it, it, this is a much more systematic um, issue, and Bush um, Bush started saying um, in 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 early September of that year, and I think it's it's and it's the same month that Bernard Lewis publishes his um, really I think very influential and just like just horrifically distorting essay, the quote unquote the roots of Muslim rage in the Atlantic. So in this very same week of early September, Bush starts to talk about. Um, Iraq, and he's he's thinking ahead to wanting to go to war, and he says, "We are. This is about far more than one invasion or one country. This is about a war. This is about the the law of civilization versus the law of the jungle." So he he pulls back the civilizationist um, argument, and then goes on to the such sort of infamous story of how. A young woman testified before Congress claiming to be a, a nurse in Iraq. Iraqis are throwing babies out of their incubators and smashing their heads on the floor. She turns out to be the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador. Fabricated story. Bush repeats this over and over and over. So maybe it's not unwitting, but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be cautious in my you know, in my sort of cautious in my interpretation here to say that, yes, he absolutely recrafts a deep clash of civilization argument with in the short term and long term profoundly Islamophobic implications. It's resonating across many registers. And this is one of the reasons that I look at popular culture along with political speech in the book. So in so a quote, you know, an academic comes out in that same week with this idea of um, this very distorted, completely ahistorical claims about um, Islam, Bernard Lewis. You then have in the same years and the years that followed um, Robert Kaplan, who is a um, travelogue writer turned political influencer, who's writing about, um, whole areas of the world. And we can start with the way he's talking about sort of um, the whole region of um, the Balkans as, as um, formed by seething ancient hatreds, completely ahistorical. He dismisses any recent history or any political reasons for um, political conflict for grievances. This all goes back to ancient hatreds in his estimation. He writes about Africa the same way. And so observers of the time suggested that um, Bill Clinton read Kaplan and then said, you know, oh, we can't do anything about Bosnia and then later Rwanda. You know, these are ancient hatreds. You know, these, you know, these people just are going to hate each other no matter what they do. So I think in this period, we see this, just this dizzying, very, very rapid re um, um, move to clash of civilizations, um, imperial thinking, 
as people frantically search for a different kind of enemy to replace Cold War justifications. We can't explain geopolitics or who our enemy is in terms of communism, at, at least on this in, in, in the geopolitical frame. So we're now going to look at this mode of clash of civilizations where we are dealing with an enemy who is, you know, fundamentally different than our than our you know than ourselves. And just one other one other link. I mean, I I see because I, I do see this happening very much at the same time. And 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 I think that um you talk about the well national the turn to national formations over international formations. And scholars of Yugoslavia have, have talked, you know, really talked about how um, the, in the role of Europe and Europeans in the United States sort of refused to, they sort of conflated old federated Yugoslavian formations with Serbian nationalism. And those were not at all the same things, but they would only recognize claims to ethno-nationalism in that war. So they in they really um they really kind of helped to craft the breakup of Yugoslavia and the war, the way the war developed by just by only recognizing um those national forms. And on and on a much, you know, on a much, much more meta level, um, because the United States was following a general policy of wanting to um, not let multilateral cooperation and formations around the world threaten its own hegemonic power, um, it sort of by default ended up supporting claims to increase, you know, narrow national and ethno-national um, claims and formations um it sort of in general so this gets you know kind of tied together in those ways penny just a few more questions for you by the way this book is absolutely fascinating there are certain aspects of our conversation that i was intending to have aspects like uh, the uh, russian link to the u.s christian right movement here in the united states which is really fascinating there's a lot to this book that we're not going to be able to get to today unfortunately but you write ironically gorbachev had revived the term new world order invoked by woodrow wilson after world war one to characterize his vision of a demilitarized post-cold war world gorbachev elaborated this proposed future in a joint statement with Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi in the 1986 Delhi Declaration, which emphasized a strong United Nations and multinational cooperation to secure a nuclear-free and nonviolent world. Also highlighting emergency environmental reforms, as we were discussing earlier, the declaration contained sustainable approaches to redress the military and environmental consequences of the Cold War race for weapons and mass consumption. Uh, the declaration garnered praise in the West for its bracing departure from rigid Soviet ideology and its eclectic adaptation of ideas from the non-aligned world and global South. So was the U.S. at the time, 1986, during President Reagan's second term, was it ever on board with Gorbachev's vision of a nuclear-free, nonviolent world focused on environmental reform, sustainable approaches to redress the consequences of the Cold War race for weapons and mass consumption? Was that the plan that led to the Soviet Union allowing the wall to come down? And was there ever any kind of sense of betrayal uh, that the Russians may have had about the United States, believing that this is the way that the world was going to move forward? Um, 
That is, um, that's such a complicated question. And I want to say, you know, yes, I think there is absolutely a sense of betrayal. Um, was the U.S. ever on board with this? Um, I mean, not really, but I, I think, but I think it's, it, I think it's very, very important. When I say not really, um, that I think that vision would have been always threatening to Reagan, and um, and I, I think you see how you can really see the, that vision getting pushed away then in the in the presidency of George H. W. Bush. But I think it's very important to. Um, you know, in these moments that the U.S. that the U.S. is not a monolith, so it's um, obviously so it's not only um, you know there was you look back to say the role of the Black Congressional Congress in the 1980s, or you look back to there was really deep congressional opposition to Reagan's policies in Central America and in Southern Africa that were really getting played out on the stage. So it's not um, so. You know, I, again, I'm not. I'm not sure that I could ever answer the question. Was this something? Was this a realistic project? You know, on the table. But I don't. Um, but I also don't think that we can see what happened as kind of necessary and overdetermined. It, it, you know, it happened in really specific ways through the machinations of a particular set of policymakers who had, you know, tremendous power, and they were in. That you know, obviously the Reagan and um, and the Bush administration. Now, did the Soviet Union feel betrayed? And rightly so. I think yeah. I mean yes, in a couple senses. So you do have some very significant you know anti-nuclear treaties that are made um, at the end of the Cold War between um, the Reagan and Bush administrations and Gorbachev and the Soviet Union. Um, so there, and I think that rightly um that rightly signals um a new kind of world that's going to be demilitarized and um and i think you know in the book i look at both um dick cheney then as secretary of defense in in korea in 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 Korea to look at the way the US does not want to demilitarize in that region and, and you know, give up having bases um, that would give it control vis-a-vis -vis China and an entire region. And also the way that, of course, the, um, go, the 1990 and 1991 in Iraq and, and bringing all of these military bases into the Middle East has just absolutely profound offense um, profound consequences long term, and so um, and this is why I think of this kind of remilitariza remilitarization is very very um, is very swift. And then of course the other big issue and um, scholars such as Mary Sorot have written about this extensively is is the fact that. Um, I think, I mean, and again, I think people have written, you know, there's there's just tremendous evidence that the Soviets and the world were, were given the clearest sense that NATO would not expand beyond Germany. And so there's been all sorts of arguments, but was it really a treaty? Was it a promise? Was it a sense? But um, James Baker, Secretary of State at the, at the time, Jack, Jack Matloff, Lock, who was the last ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union when it existed, really confirmed that sense that, you know, there that it was an understanding that that was 
that that was not going to happen. And the more, um, um, so, so there's a sense in which um, like Vaclav Havel's idea that, you know, that NATO was irrelevant and everything would be quickly dissolved. That may never have been on the table or, um, or you know, realistic in any sense. But the general idea that um, that this level of militarization and conflict had been a massive mistake, and that and that the U.S. would continue to act in good faith to um, work with um, first the Soviet Union and then and then Russia, I think was 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 absolutely on the table. Um, the other thing. Um, um, and, and then, so, the, I mean, another sort of sense of betrayal also comes, you know, later in the 90s with controversy around um, the U.S. role in the 1996 election of Yeltsin. So there's many, many things that lead up to the later break with, um, between the U.S. and Russia. One last question for you, Penny, and I'm trying to write it as we as you speak. We've been speaking with historian Penny M. Von Eschen, author of the new book, Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorder since 1989. And that's because our final question for each and every one of our guests, Penny, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. And all I could think of during your last answer is uh, the this idea that NATO was not going to expand eastward, was not going to uh, expand towards Russia. Uh, this is something that was vehemently denied by uh, former politicians and uh, military analysts, former people in the military that I saw repeatedly in the uh, before the war between Russia and Ukraine. On CNN, I would see these people in constant denial that the United States ever said, or that NATO ever said it was not going to expand eastward into the former Warsaw Bloc countries. Uh, so uh, giving, uh, so how can, how do we understand what is taking place right now between Ukraine and Russia when we put that within the historical context of the end of the Cold War? How do we understand uh, the Ukraine and Russia conflict differently when we put it within that context of a hope, if not uh, maybe not a full-fledged promise, of a lack of NATO expansion eastward? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's a question from hell, but it's also, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's also a good question. And the first thing I would say is that um, I don't think that can be really understood through the expansion of NATO itself. I think, but I think if we go back to a broader context where um, the, um, where the world continued to militarize and continued to operate on um, on notions of nationalism, ethno-nationalism, that those are the kind of things that um, where we can sort of where one can better understand that that conflict. And um, yeah, and I don't know how much time we have, but I kind of I, I I sort of I look at this. I think if we go back to um, if we go back to the late 19, you know, just before the 2000s. Um, so when George W was running for president, 
and then um, Putin was just coming into power. Um, as we know, the people around the people in the in the Bush administration were they were already talking about going to war in Iraq and going you know really wanting to go back into into Iraq in, in that in that sort of late. Um, yeah, well, but you know, before the 2000 election and, and as Bush was running. So that moment, both Putin in Russia and Bush in the United States, I sort of see that as a moment where of, of imperial nostalgia on the on the part of both countries. So I, I and I think that um, the kind of um, both imperial nostalgia that is stoked by Putin um, is it's it, it, it what's so interesting about it is it's very it, it's very nationalist based obviously he's he's hearkening back to a czarist Russian empire and also to an idea of Russia at the center of a Eurasian empire but Russia is completely in the center and it has um, he, he he has he basically has to skip over the entire Soviet Union, and he he because the Soviet Union um, the Soviet Union had claims to um, a, a different kind of cosmopolitanism, a respect for um, racial and ethnic differences. Now we can comment that that was violated all the time, but just like the U.S. violated its own claims to um, sort of democracy and equality. But that was a big part of the Soviet Union. So, and Putin also has to ignore, um, it was, I, I had the most interesting opportunity to visit Russia in 2017. And this is a moment when, you know, push, Putin wanted to play down the Russian revolution because he didn't want people asking for um, equality or healthcare or education or any of the, um, any of the positive things that came out of the revolution, however, you know, serious, the repression was. And um, so you get this really turn to this sort of, you get this real turn to this old imperial past. So I think, um, you know, in, I think in, you know, in Putin's just, you know, criminal invasion of Ukraine, um, it's, you're, you know, you're getting, again, it, it is a sense of these narrow nationalisms where you're getting this this mythic, you know, this absolutely invented mythic Russian nationalism asserted against um, um, Ukrainian nationalism and and a sovereign country, and so and I think again I think that yes, the expansion of NATO is important. I you know in that um, that Putin Putin felt you know, very threatened by having NATO countries or NATO um, bases um, so close to Russia. But I think that we really have to look at it in this broader context of a breakdown of various kinds of cooperation that see much deeper histories of people moving, of intersecting histories. And again, the assertion of um, very narrow, invented, mythic national claims. So uh, was that the, I hope that wasn't the answer from hell to the question from hell. <laughs> no, but I, unfortunately, I have a follow-up question for you. So could that imperial nostalgia from which uh, both the, the United States and Russia suffer, 
could that have overcome? Uh, could that could that be overcome if we had cons- reconsidered the Cold War when it ended? Would we have had this imperial nostalgia? I know it's a hypothetical question, and you're a historian, and you don't like to deal with hypothetical questions. But would we have had this current imperial nostalgia if we had reconsidered the Cold War when it ended? Okay, so I'll go out on a limb and say. We, yes, we could have avoided the imperial nostalgia had we um, really looked into the, the deeper history of the Cold War, mistakes that would made, were made, and then embraced the complexities, um, the, the, the complexities of history that are always denied in this narrow nationalism. So in the United States, I mean, we obviously have with Trump and many followers this assertion of a um, of, of a white Christian nationalism that's profoundly xenoph- you know xenophobic that is um, and I think ha- if one had looked at some of the consequences of the Cold War um, and and not remilitarize I mean because one of the things that is some of the things that that allow people like or Orban in Hungary, Trump in the United States to start making, to sort of stoke this fear of outsiders and create this kind of xenophobia is a real denial about this history and the militarism. So long time, so the US, um, so, and the US is not obviously the only player in Latin America or any of these places, but US destabilization of Latin America and Central America through Cold War endeavors and things that followed lead to have and and economic um, structural adjustment shock therapy kinds of programs have lead to a kind of destabilization that then lead to refugee populations that create their their policy create their their military and policy created crises on the border. But people like Trump and other um, right wing ideologues, you know, again, xenophobic, um, Islamophobic, turn t- turn these crises into a call for the protection of a white Christian nation. The um, the turn in Hungary um, to Orban again, profoundly xenophobic, nationalist. It's it's absolutely you know terrifying, and and you know saying that you know, people with quote unquote mixed populations, those aren't actually nations. Um, and this is not a sole cause, but what Orban is, um, you know, he's enabled by the by the wars in the Middle East, US wars in Iraq and Syria that destabilized, in the case of Iraq, what had been a, a very, very stable country, a country with a very cosmopolitan population, that instability flows throughout the region. And then the refugee crisis, again, is right-wing politicians jump on that and say, you know, our civilization is threatened. Um, And, you know, these, you know, these, again, deeply xenophobic, deeply Islamophobic. So I think these crises are, you know, they're, they're, they're deeply tied. And so they're, and, and, so this national, these, this extreme nationalism, and it's, and again, this would be, you know, a, a much longer conversation because we're getting forms in, you know, in India, in Brazil. I mean, these kinds of xenophobic nationalisms 
are, I think they're a, they're a pattern through, you know, it, it is, it's certainly a pattern throughout the globe. And I think that they're, they're absolutely a result. I mean, if the, if people in the globe had been deeply committed to um, turning away from the militarization and forming stronger bonds of cooperation for reasons of healthcare, for reasons of the environment, had we strengthened all of those international organizations and cooperation, I do not think that we would have had the emergence of these nationalist leaders, whether, you know, Modi in India, Trump in the United States, um, Orban in Hungary, and we could go on because there's, um, yeah, there are, are, you know, there are so many of them. And, and, and in some sense, the turn to that, that, that turn to extreme um, ugly xenophobic nationalism in Russia is, you know, that that is one of the most powerful examples and is a very dramatic departure from um, the Soviet Union itself and the, and the ideals of the Soviet Union. And um, so again, I, I, I'm again, maybe an answer from hell. I wish, you know, because I, I'm not sure I can convince anybody of this in this short period of time. But, um, but the last thing I'll say is in 2017, I went to the political museum of, of, of Russia in St. Petersburg and it was the new, um, it had changed from a museum that invited genuine, genuine scrutiny of the past when I saw it in 2008 to a museum that basically proclaimed the Russians as the biggest victims of the Soviets of all um, in this, you know, in this really um, kind of shocking narrow nationalist sense. So um, yes, we are, we kind of are in hell, right? We are very much in hell. Penny, thank you so much for being on our show. And as you were just saying, we, even though we had a, a, an hour to have this conversation, we still only skim the surface of the intense depth of your book. Again, Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorders Since 1989 by Penny M. Von Eschen, who has been our guest this morning. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating book. I'm going to go out and get a hard copy of this because I want it on my bookshelf so I can read it completely through, make sure that I've understood every aspect of this because this is one of the more, most enlightening books I we've featured on the show in quite a while. So thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, many, many thanks. Thanks to you and thanks for having me. All right. Take care. I think one of the things that uh, I learned from her book is how the right, the far right, can it, it creates crises from which they then cynically benefit. So if you want to know why we got in this problem in the first place? Turn towards the right. And when the right says that they have some sort of solution for this crisis that they've created, remember, they're the ones who created the crisis. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners, our listeners are responding so far. Remember, this week's question from hell is, what everyday food item do you, down-to-earth person <laughs> that you are, refer to exclusively by some obscure foreign Term. It's kind of a role play. This it week. is. It is you're, a little bit a LARPing, if you will. <laughs> you're down to earth. You're referring to food by some obscure foreign term. Scene. John T <laughs> says anime crackers. <laughs> what? 
Laddie O <laughs> says, yeah, it is funny. <laughs> I do refer to city chicken as brochette de poulet from time to time. <laughs> oh, really? Luke B says, many of us have worked in professional kitchens or restaurants, and many of us value education. Is it too schmancy to know what crudité means? <laughs> it's kind of a comment more than an answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Marco G says, oh, the wonders of cured meats, I whisper when I eat a salami, mortatella, or any other char- charcuterie. Charcuterie. Yeah. I always love listening to p- people mispronounce that, stumble over it while they're ordering it. Well, you just uh, were treated to it right yeah, there. Yeah, right there. Kim G says, oyster crackers. <laughs> all right. That's all we've got from Facebook this week. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell on tomorrow's show. Are you producing again tomorrow, Dan? Yeah, I'm doing again tomorrow. I hope that Lindsay is feeling better in the Me very too, near future. Yeah. She's had a sore throat. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. Uh, on August 23rd, 30 B.C.E., that's before Common Era, 2052, uh, 2052 years ago this week, uh, Ptolemy the 15th Caesar, the last pharaoh of ancient Egypt, was murdered at the age of 17. And really, who wants a job after a 17-year-old is killed while doing it? Better known by his Greek nickname, Caesarion, or Little Caesar, he was the offspring of a famous love affair between the Roman leader Julius Caesar and the Egyptian queen Cleopatra. After Julius was assassinated, Cleopatra had made Caesarion co-leader of Egypt, and the two had reigned jointly over the ancient kingdom, which was now a Roman protectorate. Meanwhile, a bloody power struggle had erupted between Octavian, Julius's nephew and designated successor in the soap opera, and Mark Antony, who got into his own sexual liaison with Cleopatra and accepted Caesarion as the son and legitimate heir of Julius. Octavian, therefore, viewed Caesarion as a political threat, and after he defeated Mark Antony in battle, Mark Antony and Cleopatra both committed suicide, and Octavian ordered that Caesarion be murdered. According to one account, the young pharaoh was strangled to death by Alexandria in Alexandria by Octavian's men. Once that was done, Octavian went on to establish himself as Caesar Augustus, first of the Roman, Empire, uh, Roman emperors, and would rule the empire for 41 years. Who knew the last pharaoh of ancient Egypt was murdered by the first of the Roman emperors? For everyone who just said, you did know the last pharaoh was killed by the first emperor, congratulations. Yet again, you've proven that you're smarter than me. Now I'm so depressed, I need Dan to read the next Rotten History, so I have time to regroup. Dan? For sure. On August 24th, 1770, 252 years ago this week, the English poet... Thomas Chatterton died by suicide at the age of 17. Born several months after his father's death, Chatterton had grown up poor in the town of Bristol, where he had been where he had become precociously obsessed with the poetry of the Middle Ages. Precociously obsessed. He I love that. Precociously phrase. obsessed <laughs> with what? The poetry of the Middle Ages. He was writing his own sophisticated poems at the age of 10 and getting them published in local journals by the time he was 11. Some of Chatterton's best-known works did not originally appear under his name since he claimed they were the work of a fictitious 15th-century monk named Thomas Rowley. Chatterton was so good at imitating medieval styles that some editors were taken in by his forgeries. Later, he became a prolific author of political essays and satire, which appeared in various periodicals and brought him considerable acclaim, but very little money. Sound familiar? 
He went days at a time without eating, and at the age of 17, he already considered himself a failure. Chatterton was finally found, dead in his rented attic, with an empty bottle of arsenic and a pile of ripped up manuscripts scattered across the floor. He died unaware that a wealthy doctor had been looking for him, with the desire to become his financial patron. Only after Chatterton's death did it become well known that he himself had written the poems he had claimed were from the 15th century. His posthumous fame grew, and he was later cited as an inspiration by some of the leading English romantics, including poets like William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, John Keats, and Percy Bysshe Shelley, all the stars. Yeah, talk about the perfect inspiration for English romantics. A teenager who is precociously obsessed with poetry of the Middle Ages, a successful forger who sees himself as a failure at only 17, as I did, and kills himself by drinking arsenic, which I did not do, just as he is about to get his big break. Now, that's the definition of romantic. Finally, in Rotten History, August 25th, 1835, 187 years ago this week, the New York Sun published the first installment of a six-part series claiming the discovery of oceans, vegetation, and intelligent life on the moon, known today as the Great Moon Hoax. No, not that Great Moon Hoax, you freaks. The articles falsely reported that the famous British astronomer, astronomer John Herschel, son of William Herschel, discoverer of the planet Uranus, had used a revolutionary revolutionary new high-powered telescope to observe herds of unicorns and other creatures on the moon, as well as sophisticated lunar cities inhabited by flying people who had bat-like wings. The series was actually intended as a satire of outlandish pseudo-scientific claims that were being made by various popular writers. Somebody was claiming bat-winged humanoids were populating the moon. But readers of the New York Sun took the article seriously, and the real John Herschel, who'd had nothing to do with them, was soon pestered by letter writers demanding more information about his supposed discoveries. In the years that followed, the New York Sun would go on to publish many other circulation-boosting gimmicks, including a famous Christmas-time editorial addressed to a child named Virginia, falsely claiming... That Santa Claus was real. Oh, that spinner of disinformation, Virginia. Thus, before ceasing publication in 1950, the paper helped exemplify an axiom articulated years later by the American writer Charles Bukowski that people don't want the truth. They want beautiful lives. Lies. Beautiful lies. Beautiful lies. Sure, but there can be beauty and truth, can't there? Now, that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow we'll have the return of economist Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic Policy and Research. Dean will be on to discuss his most recent writing, including Structuring the Economy to Give Money to the Rich is Inflationary. And we'll have an all-new Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week, another edition of Super Truth explores the mysterious matter of the vanishing money. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing I Am Your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>